This is hell. Live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. And who knows how long we'll own that. This is hell. And unbelievably, that now includes public housing policy, which is now being driven by the looming specter of private concerns. Yes, what was once a program to make certain low-income people had adequate housing has seemingly become a program to enrich connected developers, realtors, and even local sports team owners who happen to be major supporters of big city mayors. And it's not only happening here in Chicago, across the United States, as federal housing policy has shifted away from actually housing people to buttressing gentrification in formerly low-income communities, the needs of the wealthy are outweighing the needs of those who are not so well off. Returning to This Is Hell today is ProPublica reporter Mick Dumke, who posted the articles the Chicago Housing Authority keeps giving up valuable land while HUD rubber stamps the deals. And most recently, Chicago officials withhold key financial information as city hands public housing land over to wealthy ally of the mayor. That story includes the sub-headline, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has pushed a plan to lease public housing land to the Chicago Fire soccer team, but as the deal awaits federal approval, the Chicago Housing Authority has kept key details hidden from the public and other officials. Mick's work has focused on politics and government, including investigations of local and federal gun policies, secret police databases, and corruption at Chicago City Hall. This is Mick's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on the show way back in 2015 to talk about his writing at the time at the Chicago Reader. Mayor Rahm Emanuel's re-election campaign is largely funded by people outside Chicago. And Mayor Emanuel says he reformed the public parking meter deal, but he actually sold off more of the city's streets. You can follow Mick on Twitter at MickeyD1971. That's M-I-C-K-E-Y-D-1971. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far? How have your last couple of weeks been since I came down with COVID? How you doing, Chuck? I've been reading about the Tesseract. Oh, have you? You hear about this? I, I know the one from the uh, Nordic mythology. Well, it's this hyper-dimensional cube they have. Yes. You know, you look at a cube, and you just see a square if you're looking at it head-on. Mm-hmm. With the Tesseract, you see a cube. It's a hyperdimensional cube. Sweet. So I've been on that Wikipedia page. <laughs> You've been working to that a lot. Uh, uh, have you ever seen any of the uh, Marvel movies? <laughs> very few. I mean, back when they were first making like Spider-Man and X-Men, I know it's much more convoluted now. Yeah. Do, do they have Tesseract? The Tesseract in shows up in the first Thor movie, and then that turns into the whole storyline for is the rest of the series. Is it a character or is it a hyperdimensional cube? It's a hyperdimensional cube. Neat. You can learn all kinds of things things from these Marvel movies. <laughs> Don't do it. I love the, the fact that all those Marvel movies are so popular and popularly funded by the Department of Defense. That's really great. That yeah, thing. it's pretty lame. <laughs> yeah, it's really lame. So, uh, mine, you know, my week as usual has been pretty brutal. Uh, the lingering effects of COVID have left me exhausted all week. It's still, I, I still have these like random aches and pains, cold-like symptoms that wake me up in the middle of the night, ruining my sleep. Dan, you had COVID. When when did you have COVID? Was that in September? That was in June. Everybody was June. Getting it. Wow. it was the real hot thing back then. Yeah, it was. You only do things when it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it was awful. How was yours? How bad was mine? It? Mine was really bad. That's what yeah. I wanted to ask you about. How long did your 
how did, how long did you have lingering side well, effects? Mine was weird because it was intense but brief. I was Ivan Illich sitting on my deathbed, contemplating my actual non-hypothetical attitude towards death. And then, like, I had taken the Paxlovid. Right, you got that so, far. Yeah, I would taken it right away before I had any symptoms because I was testing like a madman because my wife had had it. Uh, but so, like, from, like, 6 p.m. to 12 p.m., I was on death's door, and then I was pretty fresh after that. It wasn't that lingering. But how did you get Paxlovid? Because uh, my girlfriend I and I, yeah. we called our doctor, and they said that we didn't qualify. I did not. That's what they said, too. My dad prescribed it to me. He's a doctor. Oh. Nepotism. Damn, I should have called your dad. Yeah, you should have let me know. He was giving out, like, candy. But he's old, like, he can barely do it anymore. And so he's like, I don't know what this stuff is. Look it up if it's good or not. And then you're looking it up, and it's the worst because it's like a million things at once, and I'm not a doctor, you know? But it worked. It did, I guess. I mean, it had a profound effect. I didn't get that bounce back. My mom got a bounce back. She, you... she just had it over Thanksgiving. Oh, she had a second round of it. Yeah, exactly, like Biden did at the same time, around about June. You know, you get it, and then you're testing negative, but you took the Paxlovid, and then you bounce back, you test positive again. Wow, but but right now you don't have any lingering side effects. You don't think you have long COVID or anything like that? I don't that? know. Like I said, I just I, maybe I just got to ask myself every time I'm, I stumble on a word if it was long COVID, but I basically feel okay. Yeah, because I don't know if it's like now just a cold or if this is some sort of lingering effects because I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and my legs are killing me, my arms are killing me, and I'm just like, is it just because my whole body is just falling apart in general or is this COVID, you know? So uh, not only is Dan Hill a producer on this show, but he is also the creator of the comic book, The 50 Flip Experiment, which you can find at 50flipexperiment.com. Yeah, it just went live at dominobooks.org. You can buy it there, dominobooks.org, or you can buy it from 50flipexperiment.com. Dominobooks.org. And yeah. again, why don't you tell people why it's called The 50 Flip Experiment? Boy, I don't know. It's just kind of like a fun thing. I, I, I came up with it when I was like 15. I can't really vouch for it. It's a certain poetry to it, I think. I think it does yeah, sound good. It's kind of like the way I came up with uh, This Is Hell, except you probably weren't tripping when you were 15 years old and came up with that. No name. comment. <laughs> so, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you going to miss most about Twitter? Are you going to miss anything about Twitter? I don't know. Yeah, I think I will. The train ride will be a little more bleak. <laughs> I don't have to just sit there and contemplate my existence instead of scrolling away. There's plenty of ads to read on the train, though. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Join the police, ADK. <laughs> exactly. Also, there's got to be, I mean, that's where I get all of my legal advice from whatever I see yeah. in an ad. <laughs> the, the Ambulance CT. chasers, you bet. Exactly. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And for those of you who do still celebrate Saturnalia, it's a great Saturnalia gift for all of your friends during the holiday season, or whatever you happen to celebrate. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff discusses the identities of key crisis actors, finally, and their previous performance credits. Of course, that is all tongue-in-cheek, and if you 
do not recognize that, then you have not heard a moment of truth in the past. Coming up, we are going to be speaking with Mick Dumkey on housing policy here in Chicago as well as across the United States. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff Dorchin, as we were saying, will be delivering his moment of truth. And we'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. We've only got one guest booked so far, but we'll be telling you who that is. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell at the local and federal level. Housing agencies' goals were to ensure that low-income families had adequate housing. However, as so much of the U.S. has been privatized, it now appears those public entities have redefined what they mean by providing benefits for low-income people. In fact, now it appears that housing policy is more about gentrification and profits for connected billionaires. Here to help us understand what has happened to housing policy here in Chicago and across the United States, returning to This Is Hell is ProPublica reporter Mick Dumkey, who has posted articles at ProPublica entitled The Chicago Housing Authority Keeps Giving Up Valuable Land While HUD Rubber Stamps the Deals and Chicago Officials Withhold Key Financial Information as City Hands Public Housing Land Over to wealthy ally of the mayor. This is Mick's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on the show way back in 2015 to talk about his articles at uh, Chicago Reader at the time on Mayor Rahm Emanuel and not only his plans for trying to be reelected, but also what he was doing in the notorious parking meter deal. Mick, welcome back to This Is Hell. Hey, Chuck. Nice to be here again. Thank you. It's been far too long. I really miss uh, hanging out with you downstairs. Uh, we hung out one time during a anniversary party that we had. It was really <laughs> we great. We sure did. Yeah, it was really great. <laughs> hung out with Flint Taylor. It was really, we had a blast. Uh, we did, so- yeah, yeah. And I, I just, one small correction. I think this is my third appearance. I want to say I came on way back in the day to talk about pot. Um, uh, at the time, I think Chicago was moving toward decriminalizing marijuana possession you did and um now you know uh that was way ahead of its time i guess because now we're in a whole new world with marijuana and legalization and recreational use and the disastrous uh attempt by the state to make sure that people are included who are you know, victimized by the war on drugs and whatnot. Yeah, so. and that has that whole process of legalization has been uh, disastrous. We've had so many discussions on the show about how, uh, you know, decriminalization would have been the best way to go, but instead the legalization has led to the corporatization of uh, marijuana as well. I totally forgot about that, but that's also because we had a major hard drive failure in about 2014, and uh, <laughs> I don't have access to about four years of interviews in there, so I apologize for not remembering that as well. You uh, write that the deal uh, had been orchestrated when it comes to the uh, housing policy. The deal had been orchestrated by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, but even her allies knew the optics were bad. Land long set aside for low-income housing would be turned over to a professional soccer team owned by a billionaire, and criticism was intensifying. So to what extent is there a history of the city handing over CHA land to the wealthy when it is supposed to go to low-income residents. Is this, to any degree, unprecedented? It's not unprecedented. 
Um, I don't think, though, that it's just that the city is handing over land to the wealthy. I think that the city is handing over land to uh, basically any entity that comes forward that says, um, hey, we need some property and you've got some, let's cut a deal. And in this case, Chuck, by the city, we're talking specifically about the public housing agency in the city, uh, the Chicago Housing Authority, which is officially an independent governmental body, although uh, the mayor of Chicago appoints both its CEO and most of the board members. So effectively, it's under control of whoever is leading City Hall. Um, but what I found is that the CHA, um, as it has struggled to build housing that it promised to build over the last two decades, um, is sitting on a lot of empty land, uh, land that it you know, once held um, public housing buildings. CHA tore those down starting about uh, 20, 22 years ago and promised to redevelop those sites. And some of them have been redeveloped them, have been redeveloped, a lot of them haven't. So it's sitting on all this empty land. And as I keep thinking about it, CHA has basically become a land piggy bank. So people come knocking at the door of either the CHA or in this case, uh, the deal we're talking about, the mayor's office and say, hey, I could use a little help. Have you got some property? And the CHA's land is just kind of looked at as something that's available for use, even though it's been designated, as you point out, um, for housing for low-income people. Um, it's been subsidized by taxpayers, the federal government, for decades. So there's supposed to be some rules for how it's used, but um, those are easily gotten around. And so here we are where... Uh, other governmental entities, developers, nonprofits, in this case, the billionaire owner of a professional sports team can come forward and say, hey, can you help me out with some property? And the CHA um, is willing to make a deal. As you were saying, the CHA is supposed to be independent, but uh, the people who are on the CHA board are appointed by the mayor, which would suggest that that independence doesn't really exist. Do you, to what degree do you think that elections of CHA board members would change the way in which the CHA operates and the ability for them to provide uh, adequate housing for low-income people? Well, certainly... Um there's a chance for more accountability than we have now. I mean, you know, at this point, the CHA is a couple steps removed from the public really weighing in, the CHA board members, because, yeah, you know, the only form of accountability is when the mayor comes up for election. And let's face it, Chuck, uh, the makeup of the board of the Chicago Housing Authority is usually way down the list of voter concerns when they go to the polls to cast a vote for mayor. So uh, I just think it's really, it's just completely off the table for most people. People just really aren't thinking about this agency in general, and they're certainly not thinking about the makeup of the board. The same is true for other boards of city agencies, you know, including, of course, the uh, Chicago Board of Education, uh, but that's much higher profile. You know, the Board of Ed, uh, Chicago Public School System is a much larger entity, far more employees, bigger budget affects more people directly uh, through, you know, their children attending schools, as well as the uh, teachers and other employees of the system. Um, so I think the CHA 
it's just one of those agencies that's often thought about, or excuse me, that's often uh, not thought about, um, or, or maybe less convoluted way to say it, Chuck, is to say that it's it's not thought about very much, um, especially since uh, over the last two decades, as we mentioned, a lot of the most prominent uh, CHA developments were torn down and uh, either not rebuilt or rebuilt very, very slowly. So just as footprint is much less visible uh, than it was before, uh, but the services that it's supposed to provide are as needed as ever as anyone walking, driving, uh, moving around the city knows with all the, the encampments, homeless encampments and whatnot going on. We really have a affordable housing crisis here as many other cities do. So do you think there is a connection then between the current housing policy with the Chicago Housing Authority, uh, with them not replacing old raised public housing uh, buildings? Is there a connection between that and the homeless that we are seeing on the streets? Did people lose public housing and then become homeless or did they, as you point out in your article, which so often happens, people lose access to public housing and move to the suburbs? Because, I mean, if this is, if we see evidence on the street every day of failed public housing uh, policies here in the, in Chicago, you would think that, and people are, are, you know, upset about the homelessness that is happening here in Chicago, you would think that there would be some sort of political outcry. But as you were pointing out, you know, this is just not something that is on the list of priorities for voters in Chicago. So is our people on the streets who are living on the streets, who people see every day, these encampments that we hear that people are upset about seeing on a regular basis, is this the result of the last 11 years, 20 years even, of uh, Chicago public housing policy? Well, I think there is a connection. Um, I'm not going to sit here and claim that most people out on the street you know, have a direct connection to the Chicago Housing Authority. I'm sure there are those cases, Chuck, but um, you know, having worked in an earlier point in my life, uh, having worked in a homeless ministry for a time, I could tell you that the roots of homelessness are very complicated. They're different for a lot of different people. Um, I'm not going to put all that on the Chicago Housing Authority. However, I think it's undeniable that uh, the available stock of housing, particularly for families, has declined um, through the Chicago Housing Authority's policies of the last two decades, what they called the plan for transformation, where they raised uh, tens of thousands of housing units with the promises to rebuild uh, 25,000 of them. Um, they were able to make progress in that in a very halting manner. They just recently have said that they've hit 25,000. I'm working on an analysis right now um, and it's just not anything like what they promised. And there's been a net loss of housing for families specifically of thousands and thousands of units uh, between 2000 and 2022 on the CHA's part. Um, at the same time, you know, housing stock around the city has disappeared, especially in some neighborhoods uh, where um, a lot of low-income people are concentrated. Uh, we're very, it's a very segregated city, racially, economically, and otherwise. Um, so available, safe, decent housing has declined. The city's housing commissioner has said that there's a shortage of at least 100,000 affordable units in Chicago. There are currently more than 30,000 people on the waiting lists, uh, the CHA's waiting list, both for a public housing unit and for a 
housing choice voucher, otherwise known as a Section 8 voucher that they can take to use to subsidize rent in the private market. So I could throw out statistic after statistic, but the bottom line is that there has been a loss of affordable housing. There's been a loss of public housing in the city over the last 20 years, which is directly attributable to the CHA's plan for transformation. And I don't know how you could say that that's not related to the spike in homelessness that we're having here. This plan for transformation, if I remember correctly, is from the Richard M. Mayor Richard M. Daley administration. Has the plan for transformation uh, just continued to be followed, to con- continue to be pursued, whether it was with Rahm Emanuel, who was somebody who was supported by Richard M. Daley, or whether it's uh, Lori Lightfoot? And what explains that continued pursuit of a policy that was made 22 years ago by Mayor Daley, who, you know, by the time he was leaving office, was pretty unpopular? That's right. And I, I think that the plan for transformation um, uh, at the time, a lot of people celebrated it, uh, including, I think, um, you know, various writers, uh, editorialists, columnists for some of our local newspapers. Uh, they cheered the fact that some of these developments, which were poorly man- maintained, poorly managed, some cases have become magnets for serious crimes. Um you don't have to defend the condition that they were in, uh, you know, in order to say, look, uh, they still did provide housing for thousands and thousands of, of families. Um, so you're right, this was launched under the era of uh, Richard M. Daley, uh, but let's not take the federal government off the hook. This was done in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. At the time, it was headed by a guy you may have heard of named Andrew Cuomo. Um, they worked very closely with Mayor Daley and his team to fashion this plan. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, before he was mayor, was on the CHA board. So he was one of the leaders of the CHA as they attempted to implement the plan for transformation. I think your question was basically what's happened since then. Well, it's been halting. In the early years, uh, they were really aggressive in tearing down a lot of the old properties they determined to be decrepit and in need of uh, replacement. Um, and But they didn't keep pace with housing construction. So they were tearing units down faster they could build them. The housing market collapsed, of course, around 2009, 2010. And the CHA plan for transformation hit a wall at the same time, partly because of that housing collapse and partly uh, for other reasons as well. Um, you know, I believe where there's a will, there's a way, Chuck. Uh, but things things were hard, but I also think, you know, political will was part of what has uh, slowed this process down. So over the last decade, uh, make a long story short, they have very, very slowly made progress on uh, some of the promises to rebuild units at different sites, Greeny Green, uh, Abla, which is on the near west side near the University of Illinois, um, Lathrop Homes on the near northwest side, uh, Robert Taylor. These are some of the, the bigger developments. They made some progress, but if you go past any of these sites, you will see that they continue to be a work in progress. Lots of empty land um, at a time when people need housing. So is because you also write that with HUD's consent, the CHA has essentially become a land piggy bank for other government agencies and the private sector, as you were saying earlier, through sales, leases and swaps. The agency has turned over land for two Target stores on the north side, a privately owned tennis complex on the south side and infrastructure in gentrifying neighborhoods. 
such as a firehouse and a police station on the near west side. So, and, and I, I know that it's probably all of these combined, but is the problem HUD? Is the problem the CHA? Is the problem the city council that approves of this uh, this process? Is it the problem uh, whoever is in the mayor's office? Or is it the overall power, both local and national, of the real estate sector? Because it would seem like it's all of those things combined, which would be a huge obstacle to any kind of reform. I think you're right. It is all those things combined. Um, I think that it is there is limited financing for affordable housing generally. Um, this is what I'm told. I also think there is uh, just no interest in investing in public housing, certainly not public housing as um, it's been thought of before, but even like some innovative thinking going forward about how can we build public housing and uh, put it in a variety of neighborhoods so it's not clustered all in one place, um, segregated, isolated from jobs, from uh, grocery stores, uh, from from good schools like it was in the past. But there's no appetite for that at the federal level in Congress or at, at levels beneath that. There's an attitude of we tried that and it failed. Um, you know, why it failed, that's a whole other discussion, Chuck. But as I've said before, some of the, the failure previously was also uh, a political will question, a uh, lack of investment, a lack of good management. Um, but even if you don't want to repeat what was done before, there's just not an interest in doubling down on public housing. So what we've seen over time is a slow and steady, uh, essentially privatization, even of um you know, housing policy, subsidized housing. So instead of building hard public housing units, um, the CHA with funding and support from the federal government has expanded the use of housing choice vouchers, Section 8 vouchers, so that people can take, essentially they get a coupon that they can take and apply to their rent in the private market. That is great. It's helpful to thousands of people in Chicago and, and many more in other cities. Uh, but it relies on there being um, quality, existing, affordable housing in the private marketplace. You can't take a Section 8 voucher just anywhere. There are limits to the amount of money that you can use uh, use it for, um, apply it toward. Um, there's a, you know limits on the availability of housing. If there's just not good housing out there, it doesn't matter whether you have you know, a housing choice voucher. Um, and moreover, you know, when you give vouchers, that kind of squeezes and tightens the private rental market, which actually ends up making it less affordable over time. So for all these reasons, um, you know, there's a shortage of public housing. There's a shortage of privately owned affordable housing. And starting with the federal government on down to the local level, like here in Chicago, there's just not a great appetite to uh, move quickly to build more public housing, hard public housing units, apartments that people could move into uh, you know, next year. There's just not an appetite. Low-income residents in during the construction of Robert Taylor homes, they were already uh, very upset about that construction and about the problems with Robert Taylor homes before even Robert Taylor homes 
were finished back in the late 50s, early 60s. So there's always been complaints about uh, the lack of uh, secure, stable, adequate housing within public housing buildings. Do vouchers give access to low-income residents to better housing than they would have had with these crumbling uh, public housing buildings, buildings that weren't being maintained, buildings that from their very beginning had uh, infrastructural problems like elevators not working. Do vouchers give people any better access to good housing than public housing did? That's a great question. I think in a lot of cases they do. your point is well made. Uh, the history of public housing, uh, again, many reasons why um, it had problems and in, in many instances why it failed, um, including the cheap construction, poorly designed um, buildings. Uh, you think of like in Chicago became known, a lot of the, the old high-rise properties became known for what they called sort of the gallery style of design. So there were like walkways um they called them sort of balconies in the sky you know or or sidewalks in the sky but they had uh, basically you left your unit even to walk to the elevator you were out in the open elements it was not always a fully enclosed building um and that obviously opened it up to to you know weather is harsh here that made things uh made the the maintenance problems uh, that would follow in the in in succeeding years made them much worse and you're right the elevators there's a long litany of of things that didn't work um but it's also true that uh you know the cha was um mismanaged for much of its history uh you know waste of its resources poor maintenance um with help from hud and congress i mean the money didn't come to keep up a lot of these buildings so again we can people have written really excellent books. There's a long discussion about what has happened. Uh, Going forward, though, your question is about um, this increasing use of the private market, the, you know, the thinking that uh, we couldn't do it with public housing. So rather than try to figure out some way uh, to redo that or, or find some innovative solutions to our public housing problems, the private market will essentially solve these ills instead. And it just creates another set of problems. So lots of people have been able to take their vouchers. They've been able to um, move into decent housing. Um, They've been able to choose the neighborhoods they live in. uh, And they have had access to jobs and transportation and quality schools and and all the things that people deserve with the place they live. Um, But in a lot of other instances, things just haven't worked that well. The city of Chicago has a law in the books that requires landlords to accept a Section 8 voucher. They're not allowed to deny someone um, a lease just on the basis of, you know, the fact that their source of income is through a subsidy. Uh, But people still do it. And in a lot of the suburbs uh, here in other cities, uh, those laws do not exist. So landlords regularly turn down applicants who come forward with a housing choice voucher. Uh, so that's a, that's one of the problems. Uh, you also have to have, um, you know, available apartments that uh, are convenient for you, that, um, you know, that the government will agree to subsidize uh, that level of rent. And that's not always the case. 
I've also heard from a lot of people who have units and uh, the landlord is pretty happy with the fact that every month they get a check from the government to, to pay a good chunk of, or all of their rent. Um, and by the way, the, the subsidies are based on people's income level. Most people who have these vouchers are working. Uh, they have jobs. They just don't have an income level that will uh, sustain them uh, to, to be able to pay their rent, their other expenses. So it's literally a subsidy. It's not uh, just a giveaway to everyone. Uh, important point for, for people who are skeptical of these kinds of things. Uh, but a lot of landlords are happy to take that money and then they just don't do any maintenance. So people end up living in uh, slums uh, by another name, uh, essentially. And, and the final point I made, Chuck, on this is that um, a few years ago, I, I haven't done this recently, but a few years ago, I did an analysis of where people were living in Chicago with housing choice vouchers, and they were uh, almost as segregated as they had been in uh, when they were living in public housing. Uh, so even though there are really good examples, lots of instances of people being able to um, take the voucher and live in either a higher income neighborhood or neighborhood with more amenities, a lot of people for different reasons do end up uh, racially and economically segregated again. Sometimes they that's a community where uh, you know their people live, they their families, their friends, uh, where they're comfortable. Uh, other times they can't get anybody to rent to them um, or they don't want to be the only person of color in an all white neighborhood that uh, where they feel you know hostility. Uh, so there's lots of different reasons, but the voucher system has definitely not solved the issue of residential segregation in Chicago. You also write that the near West Side deal that Mayor Lightfoot is pushing would let the Major League Soccer team, the Chicago Fire, build a new practice facility on CHA-owned land that has uh, that was long reserved for new housing. The team is owned by billionaire Joe Mansueto, who I believe is from uh, Morningstar, right? The investment firm? Yeah, he was one of the founders and uh, the leader for a long time of Morningstar. He has, I believe, officially stepped away from that position. But uh, yes, he was uh, essentially the architect or one of the architects of Morningstar's rise. So he's a Lightfoot ally, as you point out. Questions about the deal grew after ProPublica and WTTW-TV, Chicago's PBS affiliate, published a story about it in June. In August, housing advocates sent a letter to HUD officials asking them to oppose the fire agreement, the Chicago Fire Agreement. The CHA's failure to build promised new homes, quote, must not serve as a basis to jettison an important supply of coveted available public housing land in a gentrifying community, they wrote. These types of deals show how the CHA has drifted away from its mission to provide affordable housing, said Don Washington, one of the authors of the letter to HUD. Washington is executive director of the Chicago Housing Initiative, a coalition of community organizers. You then quote Washington saying, what it's doing is getting the CHA and HUD out of the business of creating brick-and-mortar housing for low-income, mostly black and brown children and families. They're instead building new facilities for new people. Is the CHA and HUD then, through actions like these, not providing housing for low-income people, but completing the process of gentrification? Is CHA and HUD now forcing low-income people out of cities and, intentionally or not, promoting both race and class segregation? Well, the data shows that they are. Um, Certainly the CHA would say... uh, that's not what we're doing. 
we are um, providing a lot of different kinds of housing opportunities. They'd like to say that housing opportunities for people. Um, we're intent on not repeating the mistakes of the past. And so we are trying to uh, develop full communities, not just build housing units uh, to put people into. We're trying to, to build communities with economic opportunity. At the last CHA board meeting, Chuck, I heard the CEO of, this, of the CHA, Tracy Scott, talk about economic power. We want to provide economic power to our residents, uh, she said. So this is the kind of language you're hearing now. Um, but Don's point in a lot of advocates and residents of the CHA uh, are saying, you know, that's all well and good. People do need economic opportunities. They want access to jobs. They want their kids to grow up uh, around resources. And that takes more than just housing, but we need housing. You know, we just got done talking about the homeless population here. And even people who aren't living in encampments are often doubling up or tripling up uh, with other family groups. Um, they're, you know, doing some version of, uh, you know, couch surfing or, or just staying with people for extended periods of time or living in inadequate housing. Um, there's no doubt that there is a need for more housing. And so what the CHA seems to be saying here is that um, we are going to build housing units kind of where we can fit them in, but we're not going to just build housing units. We're going to make sure that they're surrounded by other kinds of amenities. Um, I think they've got a point that they've got a decent argument, but the problem is, as I've tried to document in these stories, is that there's not a plan. There's not a plan to say, hey, we're going to rebuild Taylor with this, this, and this. Instead, what happens is uh, they struggle to build the housing. They're sitting on all this empty land. And then uh, the leader of a nonprofit tennis and athletic organization comes forward and says, hey, I want to build a huge tennis and recreational center. You got a bunch of land. How about we make a deal? And the CHA says, sure, we'll sell it to you for before below market rate value. Just promise that you will give access to uh, your tennis facility to some underprivileged kids. Um, and I don't want to brush off the fact that kids might have access to facilities they wouldn't otherwise. But Chuck, the long version, you know, what's happening with this story is that the housing isn't getting built. And then somebody with the resources to put in a tennis center makes that happen instead. Um, over at Abla, right where Joe Mansueto and the Chicago Fire want to build their practice facility just a couple blocks from there. Um, I mentioned that the CHA uh, gave up land uh, for a police station, a firehouse, and another social service agency. Um, you know, all these have some public utility, but there's a real sense that they were built for the next wave of people to come in that this is a gentrifying area and that new infrastructure and new resources weren't provided until it started to gentrify. Um, and I, people are sensitive about that and they feel that way because they just look at back on decades of broken promises. Um, I've been in community meetings where 
people, and I'm talking specifically about uh, Black people, Black residents of Chicago, who say, look at all the housing that's been shut down in our neighborhood. Look at the schools that have been closed down, the mental health clinics. And so uh, this goes beyond any one deal or even a specific, uh, you know, any specific promise by the CHA. It's just a collective feeling that institutions are being shut down in some communities and then uh, there's money for new investment when other people start to move in. And, and I think they're supported by uh, by data and by facts and uh, as well as like the narrative that's going on. It was so weird when you mentioned uh, the tennis court facility, the tennis facility that the uh, housing, that CHA uh, decided to put on some formerly public housing land. I grew up in a suburb right across the, right across 8 Mile Road from Detroit that was about 99% white at the time. It no longer is. And when I was growing up, there were neighbors, there were community members who were very upset about African-American kids coming over from Detroit and playing on basketball courts in our crappy little suburb. So they intentionally had a campaign to change all of the basketball courts into tennis courts because they figured this would keep African-Americans out of the suburb. And so I was just when I saw that tennis courts, I was like, I can't I just it just reminded me of that horrible process and how much that revealed the intense racism around me. So to what degree then is not only what you quote a CHA spokesman calling the failed public housing model of the past under attack, but the entire idea of public housing, is this an attack on the old model of public housing or on any public housing model? That's a great question. And I think the answer is both. I think that, uh, the old public housing model, and uh, not just the model, but as I, the point I keep making, I, I will beat this dead horse again, uh, but the way that it was carried out, you know, the failures to, essentially there was a, at a certain point in time, um, I believe that there were uh, policies in place to ensure that it failed um, through poor maintenance, mismanagement, just abandonment of the whole idea that it could work. So there's definitely an attack on that. But I also think that that narrative is being used to prevent us from doing any kind of public housing, uh, ambitious public housing plans that might work going forward. Uh, in fairness to the CHA, they have, from the beginning, have said, uh, from the beginning of the plan for transformation, they have said, we are going to rebuild these old public housing sites with mixed income communities. And their model from the beginning was uh, a third public housing, a third affordable housing, which is a little bit different, depends on people's income level and, and whatnot, and then a third market rate housing. So they wanted to build mixed income communities um, integrated, hopefully racially and certainly economically. That hasn't worked very well. Uh, as I mentioned, the housing market, of course, goes up and down. That's affected the market rate units and, and the demand, uh, the ability to sell those market rate units. Um, and also, I think there's just been resistance from people who might move into these areas. I mean, if there are condos you can buy anywhere around the city, um, people who 
might live, you know, in a community where two thirds of the units are either public or affordable housing, like, you know, it takes a certain buyer who's going to want to follow through in that, who's interested in that. Let's be, let's be honest about that. Um, and the CHA has struggled and their development partners have struggled to make that work. Uh, the model has uh, maybe been successful here and there, but it just hasn't been successful citywide. You also, and, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say that you also mentioned a 2015 federal consent degree, which resulted from litigation to force the CHA to fulfill its promises of turning these old raised buildings and using that land to uh, build new public housing or build new low income housing, adequate low income housing. Uh, then as now more than 30,000 people were waiting for housing assistance from the CHA, you add. So if they are vi violating a 2015 federal consent degree d decree to you what explains why the terms of that decree are not being fulfilled after all it is a federal decree which at least sounds like something that should be legally binding that's right i a lot of the major sites uh the largest sites that the cha owns are under some kind of court orders um there are i just counted this up the cha is responsible still responsible for building more than 2,000 units at uh, sites around the city. Um, these are just under court orders. Why haven't they done it? Why haven't the courts come forward and said, you need to do this faster? Uh, I don't know exactly. My sense is that um, it's sort of been a carrot kind of thing. I mean, what are you gonna gain by, how do you punish the CHA for not doing this? You know, how do you force them to build housing faster? Uh, could they be held in some kind of contempt? I and mean, that's a great question. I haven't, I don't know the answer to it. Uh, but Chuck, you get at something, you know, very important here, which is like, we're looking at multiple levels of government, multiple branches of government that are essentially involved in making sure that the CHA isn't moving forward with building these units that it's responsible for building. You know, we've got uh, City Hall here. We got the CHA board, we've got City Hall, we've got, uh, you know, the US Department of Housing and Urban Development, we've got Congress and it's, it's funding decisions, budgeting decisions. We've got federal judges um, and court orders that don't appear to, to be moving with great haste. Uh, you know, it's like every every branch of government is involved. And what it adds up to is, again, a lack of will to uh, help house people through innovative public housing policies. You mentioned uh, Audrey Johnson, whose family has deep roots in what were the Harold L. Icke's homes, uh, has watched those promises get broken, promises of new housing, uh, as the land grows more valuable. And you quote Johnson saying, I think they're trying to push us out. They're trying to push the black and the brown to the suburbs, and eventually they will if we allow them to. So how have the suburbs become more accessible to Chicago's low-income residents? Those were supposed to be, at least a lot of racists hoped at one time, they were supposed to be a place where they could get away from people who were of color, who they deemed as unworthy to be their neighbors. How much is that change due to CHA and HUD policies? Are local housing agencies 
along with federal ones, purposely working to displace low-income residents from cities and moving those former city residents to the suburbs? And how did the suburbs become more accessible? Well, first of all, I would say that Audrey Johnson's sentiments are shared by a lot of people in Chicago and I presume other cities as well. Uh, it's the facts speak for themselves. Chicago's black population has dropped considerably. Uh, I think it's dropped by more than 200,000 people over the last couple of decades. I believe some of that is tied to the plan for transformation. Um, certainly the plan for transformation is uh, like a metaphor that accompanies, you know, that decline in the black population. It's it's one of the narratives uh, that is is part of that decline. Um, if you go around the Chicago area, um, in some ways, what has happened, Chuck, is that these issues in the city. You, you're right that at one point in time, the suburbs were thought of as kind of another land uh, versus what was going on in in the cities. But now you go around the Chicago area, and I think this is true in other metro areas, especially segregated metro areas, and the suburbs in a lot of ways have taken on uh, the problems that the city had. Um, it's just an extension of the problems in the city. These are, you know, metropolitan, these are regional problems, not just city suburban problems. So if you go to the Southland here, the, the near South suburbs, a lot of those neighborhoods are a lot of those communities are devastated, um, even worse than some of Chicago's neighborhoods that are have been disinvested in and are emptying out. Um, and so in some ways, there's this there's this American, I think of this like in, in almost philosophical terms, there's like this American uh, habit of always like leaving something behind abandoning something when you don't like it anymore when it's it needs to be fixed and just continuing to move ever further outward so you know our suburbs have just kind of scattered we've got exurbs now right and 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 certainly like a lot of the inner ring suburbs are have taken on some of the issues that were never addressed in the city and and they just keep spreading out i'm not sure if i answered your question directly but that's kind of what i've seen and i think that Public housing is part of that. Um, the public housing policies are part of that, especially with a lot of these vouchers people can take. Um, they don't have to keep them in the city. They can take out to the suburbs, uh, but it's problematic. Transportation, public transportation isn't as good. There's often uh, same issues with access to jobs, sometimes even worse issues with uh, access to jobs, especially in some of the struggling suburbs. So that's why I say I think it's we're almost seeing the pattern repeat itself um, in, in new and sometimes more complicated ways in a lot of the suburban communities. You write that in response to questions about the Chicago Fire Soccer Team Practice Facility land purchase, a CHA, or land lease, I should say, a CHA spokesperson wrote in a statement that the agreement with the fire has not been finalized, but the, the general terms of the quote-unquote partnership have the support of resident leaders. But as guests have pointed out on our show in the past, Mick, public-private partnerships seem to always prioritize the demands of the private entity over the needs of of the public, in your opinion, how much are these public-private relationships an actual partnership? Yeah, I mean, what a 
that's a that's a a buzzword term. That's one of those PR terms that's thrown out there. It's it's a privatization deal. Um, to call them partnerships is just BS in my word. It doesn't mean that governmental entities can't get anything from relationships uh, with the private sector. Of course, uh, the government isn't able to do everything. Some of these, uh, you know, every contracting agreement on some level is a partnership, if you want to call that. Um, but it's also a business deal. And that's what we have to think about these as business deals. The private sector doesn't enter into them if it's not going to make money off them. The aims of government are supposed to be different. The aims of government are supposed to be to serve the public. Um, and we're primarily here talking about various infrastructure concession deals. So these are supposed to be deal, you know, if they're going to enter into these deals, the government entities, they're supposed to be serving the public. But what ends up happening time and time again, and it's kind of ironic that our last conversation was about, you know, touched on the parking meter deal, because I see a lot of parallels with this deal here. Um, what ends up happening is that the government ends up getting something that um, it either is responding to an inquiry or an interest or a pitch from the private sector, in which case it's already sort of on its heels, like it didn't initiate the conversation. There are bad contracting deals, but those are usually terms that the government establishes, right? It issues requests for proposals. This is what we're looking for. What can you do for us? A lot of these other kinds of, you know, supposed partnerships um, are initiated by the private sector. And then the government ends up sort of like saying, is there some way we can make this work for us too and give you what you want? And I think that's really true in this case. Um, the CHA did not solicit bids. It did not say, hey, we're sitting on this land over at uh, Roosevelt and Ashland on the near west side. We haven't been able to do anything with it for 20 years. Uh, we had planned housing for it. Our plans have uh, run into headwinds time and time again. We want to do something with this. Let's come up with a new plan for it. Uh, let's issue a request for proposals and see what kind of ideas people come forward with. Oh, and it turns out the best one, the one that's going to bring us the most money or you know the most amenities for you know, public existing public housing residents, the greatest ability for us to produce more housing units. Um, that ends up being this deal with the fire. Uh, okay, then we can have a debate, a discussion and debate about whether it should go through. But none of that happened here. This was, this was the opposite. This was uh, the Chicago fire saying, we want a chunk of land. And first they tried to get a chunk of land owned by the Chicago public schools up on the Northwest side. Um, a big park space in between three existing schools. And they talked for months uh, last year with CPS officials and Board of Education officials, and, and that those talks ending up ended up stalling out. So instead, uh, Mayor Emanuel, it's Mayor Emanuel, that's a slip of the tongue, Freudian slip, I guess, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> Mayor Lightfoot's team came forward to the Chicago Fire and said, we've got three other sites that maybe you'd be interested in. They were all CHA sites. They were all chunks of CHA land. And the one that the fire was interested in the most was the Abla site, uh, probably because it's um, a neighborhood that is furthest along in its development slash gentrification. It's 
accessible, easily accessible uh, by public transportation. It's close to highways and so forth. It's a great site. And so they chose that one. And then the CHA started working out terms of a deal, which we still haven't seen yet. Uh, so it just is not the way that one of these deals should be done. People who are fans of soccer or the Chicago Fire, this is not about either of those things. This is about a government entity. This is about a public asset and whether it has been, uh, it's being used, um, it's being auctioned off in the proper manner. And then going along with that, whether the CHA has a coherent policy for providing housing to people who need it. Just two more questions for you, Mick. You write that CHA, the CHA refused to disclose records showing the appraisal and analysis used to determine the value of the land it plans to lease to the Chicago Fire Soccer Team for their practice facility. The agency cited an exemption in the Illinois Federal Freedom of Information Act that allows it to keep documents secret if they are considered preliminary or draft proposals. A CHA spokesperson said the agency will release the appraisal once the deal is finalized. But if the deal is finalized... Won't it be too late to do anything to change the terms of that deal? And do you believe that is the point, to keep the public uninformed until it is too late? Absolutely. I mean, the CHA says it doesn't want to weaken its negotiating position with the fire. Uh, Come on. This should be, this is a public asset. At least other government officials should know what the terms are. Like members of the city council haven't even seen this. I don't think that HUD has even seen it, and HUD is being asked to sign off on the deal. And, you know, if HUD doesn't ask those kinds of questions, if it says it's outside its uh, its authority, then, you know, shame on HUD. Because, again, where there's a will, there's a way. Someone has to step up and say, what is an appropriate, ask the hard question, what is an appropriate use of this property? You know, this is public housing property subsidized in different ways by taxpayers for decades. And if we're going to turn over to a private entity, then the process for doing so should be in the open. Uh, Everyone should be fully convinced that it is a great deal for taxpayers generally and public housing residents and people in need of housing specifically, because that's what the property has been designated for. I just don't, I just haven't heard a good argument otherwise. Yes, uh, the State Freedom of Information Act allows the CHA to doing that. It's not doing anything illegal by keeping this information secret, but that doesn't mean that it's the right thing or the proper thing to do or that it's good government. We have been speaking with ProPublica reporter Mick Dumkey. You can follow Mick on Twitter at Mickey D 1971 as we do with all of our guests our final question is the question from hell the question we may hate to ask you may hate to answer or more than likely our audience is going to hate your response and what this question reveals to them so do you think that no matter who the mayor is the same pro- uh, process would have taken place with a mayor election coming up in 2023 can Chicago voters go to the polls and vote the gentrification uh, process of the CHA, can they vote that out of office? I would certainly like to think that other people in positions of leadership could make other decisions, even if they ultimately think it's so important to uh, keep the fire and its practice facility in the city that they're gonna bend over backwards Uh, do everything they can to find them a piece of property, even if this ends up being a piece of property. 
I would like to think that some other mayor would say the process needs to be totally different and we need to have a clear plan uh, for how we're going to house more people in need of housing at this time. Uh, I, I think they can do better. I think other people have already said they will do better. So we'll have to see if this ends up being a concern in the, in the campaign. Mick, it is a pleasure hearing your voice again. Great having you back on the show. It's not going to be seven years later the next time that we have you on the show. <laughs> I'm going to be bugging you in the very near future to have you back on. Your work at ProPublica is fantastic. Congratulations on working at ProPublica. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate uh, all your great questions, your interest in these topics, and uh, I agree. Just really nice to talk to you. Hey, hope uh, you feel better. I owe you a beer. I will take that. All right. Take care, Mick. See ya. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from McDumkey on how public housing is no longer as much about the public as it once was, if that in some way made you realize this is hell, please subscribe to our bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And this podcast shortly after at the same place where you can subscribe, patreon.com slash this is hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what are you going to miss most about Twitter? Over at Facebook, Diddy N says nothing. Kathleen C says not one thing. <laughs> Nick E expounds, I'm not getting chased off of any platforms. I'm going to join even more. Not a day goes by when I don't connect with amazing people. One thing it's good for is becoming aware of national and international news sources, particularly non-famous non-profit ones. I understand and respect anyone's choice to leave it, though, because I've thought of it for a long time and still consider it. It's a, it's a monopoly capitalist authoritotalitarian S-storm. Wow. But he doesn't say S, Chuck. Oh, really? Aaron D. Soap storm, is that what he's saying? Yeah, he says it's a soap storm. <laughs> Odd. Aaron D. says a little more succinctly, tweeting the first thing that comes to mind when I am on the toilet. <laughs> and then over at uh, Twitter itself, hypocrite reader says, oh, straw man argument, I'll miss you most of all. And then he has a little Wizard of Oz image there. John K. says, watching Musk attach his Tesla autopilot system Sending Twitter careening towards the rear of a semi-trailer full of freaked-out journalists who think Twitter is a town square. Ahmed S. says, constant anticipation of its demise. Ameritrix says, blocking fascists. Yeah, that is fun. That is fun. At more 68 says, my Twitter bubble, my tweeps, often remind me I'm not alone in this neoliberal cesspool of a failed experiment. Hmm. Text. Yeah, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. You have any tweeps? I kind of want, want some tweeps. Text of <laughs> the matter. delicious. Yeah, right? T text of the matter says, role-playing as Elon Musk. And finally, Pen D says, the slow tease. <laughs> Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, please subscribe to our Patreon podcast. As I said, patreon.com slash this is hell. On this week's Patreon, you may remember the, those heady days of the war on Christmas. And if you do not, well, good for you, because it was nothing more than a purposeful right-wing culture war distraction from the real problems that are happening in the world, like, you know, war, poverty, homelessness, violence, gun violence, racism, sexism, misogyny. 
patriarchy. You know, the real things that affect us all every day. But there are a few stragglers still fighting that war, still insisting that by wishing someone happy holidays, you must be doing the devil's work. But as we all know, if Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, then Christmas... Uh, well, Christians have a serious calendar problem, as all signs point to Christ not being born in the winter, but the spring. But it's not only Christmas that seems to have a problem with its meaning. Here in the U.S., for instance, we do not celebrate workers organizing to get out from under the thumb of exploitative bosses as they do all over the world on May Day. Instead, we moved that holiday to September, called it Labor Day, and celebrated it not and celebrated not the power of the people to get better pay, improved benefits, and shorter work hours for all, but the fact that people work for their bosses, and that bosses work too. Armistice Day, which recognizes the end of the misleadingly named Great War, a celebration was a celebration of peace and has here in the United States been changed to Veterans Day when we thank those who fight in wars, which is very different from celebrating peace. Then there's what indigenous people call the National Day of Mourning, which remembers the European and U.S. wars of genocide, and somehow we call that Thanksgiving? It seems the U.S. has a real holiday denialism problem. Also on Patreon, we will be playing our December 7th, 20, uh, 2002 interview from nearly 20 years ago uh, with Dan Kovalik, Assistant General Counsel of the United Steelworkers. So we're playing this interview because of the uh, p- potential for a rail strike here in the United States and President Biden interfering and forcing all of that, uh, forcing the strike not to happen, forcing workers to work. Dan was about to accompany Luis Galvis to Chicago. Uh, Luis was going is, was involved in a case uh, that his organization was doing some ongoing work against the abuses by Coca-Cola in Central and South America. So we figured it'd be a good opportunity to look back on what we were talking about when it came to labor 20 years ago. But the only way you can hear all of that is through supporting This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber again on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. That's like two years of additional This Is Hell with each and every one featuring a new monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. And that's actually what we're using uh, the money that we raise through Patreon to do to make sure we can get all of our shows, through the 26-year history of our show, all the ones that we still have, <laughs> some some have been lost, unbelievably, but we want to make sure that everybody has free access to all of those shows. It's going to be kind of spendy for us to do that, so we need your support at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the Moment of Truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll be announcing this week's winner. I'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. Super Truth. The Massacre of the Crisis Actor. When the Titanic sank, it would have been a blot on the record of the ocean voyage industry, except for one thing. 
the incident never occurred. There never was one of three Olympic-class ocean-going vessels operated by White Star Lines called the Titanic. It was never designed by Thomas Andrews, who was not the chief naval architect of the non-existent Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast, where it was not built, and who didn't himself die in the disaster that didn't befall the ship. It was not 882 feet, 9 inches long, 92 and a half feet wide at its widest point. It was never under the command of Captain Edward Smith, who never went down with the ship, which didn't sink after hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic, and in any case, never manifested in this material realm. The unsinkable Titanic and its ironic fate of sinking was entirely the invention of filmmaker and noted hoaxer James Cameron. Cameron himself never existed. He was a hoax perpetrated by Hollywood Jews like me. We can't believe you fell for that crap. Cameron did not begin his career running a three-card Monty scam on Astor Place in New York City, which was not named after American millionaire John Jacob Astor IV, who also did not die in the mythical sinking of the ironically unsinkable non-existent Titanic. None of the movies Cameron is supposed to have made ever existed, not even the abysmally non-existent The Abyss, nor True Lies, evidence of which has been grossly exaggerated. But the biggest and least believable hoax to crawl from this tangled nexus of falsehoods was the crisis actor known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. The idea that the bones of her skeleton were made from French-milled soap has never been disproven because such a claim has never been made. Margaret Molly Brown, of course, never didn't go down with the Titanic because the Titanic was never a real thing. After her murder by the mythical murderer Michael Myers, whose impossible crimes were chronicled in the Halloween films, a slasher movie franchise that itself only barely existed, Molly Brown herself was discovered to have been a portly dyspeptic crisis actor named Alex Jones. Under the pseudonym Brown, Jones has portrayed numerous victims of false flag catastrophes. In one of them, tentatively titled The O.J. Simpson Murders, Jones was paid to portray the luckless Nicole Brown Simpson, no pseudo-relation. Jones won the role thanks to his ability to live for many days without a head. Among Jones's other crisis portrayals is the role of up to 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilian non-combatants in the Son Tin district of South Vietnam in the village of My Lai, massacred by U.S. soldiers during the long occupation of the country by the U.S. military and its commercial subsidiaries. The false flag operation known in the U.S. as the Vietnam War was actually an attack by movie-making Jews meant to cover up their attack in 1921 on a town in close proximity to Tulsa, Oklahoma, populated by about 1,200 Alex Jones clones and one original Alex Jones, a town known colloquially as Fat Wall Street. The Joneses of Fat Wall Street were recently compensated in secret reparations amounting to somewhere in the millions of dollars. Many such Jones towns, as they're called, have existed throughout history. The first Jones town was the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was supposedly destroyed by the mythical demolition firm Fire and Brimstone and Company, 
as punishment for the unpleasant personalities of the town's inhabitants. Jones reportedly reaped an undisclosed amount of shekels from that operation, possibly hundreds of thousands. His uncanny ability to imitate a population of innocent people of anywhere from a few dozen to many millions has since served him as a lucrative source of the common currency of whatever realm he finds it to his advantage to serve. His talent as a mimic truly came into play when he was hired by giants to play all the creatures of the world not taken aboard Noah's famous ark. Every cubit of the ark, of course, was mythical. There was no such thing, nor was there any flood, great or small, of the type described in the legends of various cultures throughout the world. The great deluge, or great flood, was a cover story created by the mixed offspring of angels and humans, the Nephilim, who wished humanity to believe they no longer existed when in fact it is they, or maybe others with a similarly nefarious agenda, who are pulling the strings of those who seek to keep us under their yoky and shacklish domination. The more curious among you might find yourselves asking, are all famous massacres the work of Alex Jones? The answer, of course, if you want an answer and want to believe an answer, is yes. Even the ones claimed to be hoaxes by Alex Jones himself? Yes, it's a tactic of misdirection and hiding in plain sight. Really? You might find yourselves asking. And the response is, yes, <laughs> really. Even the massacre of Jews in Palestine by the invading Greeks, as reported by Flavius Joseph in his book, Jewish Antiquities. Yes, all the victims were Alex Jones wearing Jew face. Even the massacre of the firstborn by Pharaoh's order in ancient Egypt. Yes, every baby was played by Alex Jones, and subsequently each baby killed by the hand of the angel of God in retribution was also played by Alex Jones. Jones has habitually played both ends against the middle. Jones played the cavalrymen killed in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, as well as the Lakota Sioux people starved by the government of the USA, neither of which ever happened. The simple, super true fact of the matter is, much like the single electron zooming everywhere instantaneously, creating an ephemeral dream we perceive as material reality, every victim of everything has been Alex Jones all along. Alex Jones is the eternal cosmic victim of everything victimizing. We wouldn't say it, and by law we couldn't say it, if it wasn't super true. Even the so-called Jews who run everything from behind the scenes, yet are victims of the calumny and libel that they run everything from behind the scenes, even the genocides they've suffered, even the current Palestinians whose erstwhile homes they occupy and whose ghettoized populations the Israeli army seeks to control are in fact simply Alex Jones in quantum superposition in every scenario, real or imagined, agonized or dreamed, perceived or ignored. It's mind-blowing. But if it weren't mind-blowing, how could we be certain it was super true? It's so unbelievable, we have no choice but to ultra-believe it. And that's been the moment of truth. A good day of construction to you. <laughs> Alex Jones, the original crisis actor. I think that's on his Alex resume. Alex Jones, now. the universal crisis <laughs> that's actor. That's right. That is absolutely true. All right. I've gone way too far over this week. Jeffy, until next yes. time. What? Oh, hey, you know what? 
Give the award to the straw man one. That's a good one. You like that one? All right. I love that one. We'll see. I'm going to ask Dan which of the three that, that including that one, which uh, should be the winner. I probably shouldn't have tried to persuade no, anybody. I'm not saying anything. All right. Until next time. Ciao. Stay beautiful. What? Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? And remind us, what is it anyway? This week's question from Hell was, what are you going to miss most about Twitter? We have one last response from our pal Michael C., who says, the fleeting belief that being rid of Twitter will lead to any kind of search for a better or more fulfilling life. Wow, that's a that's a damn good answer. Yeah, it's a good one there at the end. That's a really good one. So which one do you like the most, Dan? Uh, that one, uh, what Jeff was just saying from Hypocrite Reader, uh, oh, straw man argument, I will miss you most of all. Uh, Stephen S. saying uh, the bots, or Ameritrix saying blocking fascists. Which one do you like the most? Oh, or do you like that one where uh, Text of the Matter said role-playing as Elon Musk? Boy, that's a lot of good ones. I, I love Hypocrite Reader, but it's just, I got to say, as a visual, you know, it had a visual component and radio doesn't have that. So yeah. we'll just say the bots. That's good. That's succinct. The bots. All right. Stephen S., you are the winner of this week's question from Hell. We will contact you via Facebook and just tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like and we'll get it in the mail to you post haste. Congratulations, Stephen. Uh, so my answer to this week's question from Hell, what are you going to miss the most about Twitter? Yeah, here's the weird thing. I'm not going to miss Twitter because... The way I interact with Twitter is I use it only as a you know, news feed. That is, I've uh, compiled a list of 420 news sources, not 420 news sources as in weed, but 420 was just an odd, weird coincidence that happened. And a separate list of around 100 sources for potential guests. And other than posting announcements about This Is Hell, all I have ever done on Twitter is uh, use it as a kind of personalized newswire to stay connected with listeners and to send interview requests to potential guests whose email addresses I just can't find anywhere else online. It's free, so I don't give any money to Twitter, and I've never bought a product before because it was being advertised on Twitter. I don't even have the pleasure of being attacked by white supremacist, misogynist, fascists on Twitter. So I've, you know, successfully avoided all that ugliness. Still, as soon as a better platform comes around that provides the same access to news and connecting with listeners and potential guests, I'll immediately leave Twitter as I'd rather have nothing to do with anything Elon Musk does. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, we do have one guest confirmed for next week. Can you tell us who that is? Again, Monday's guest will be Jackman staff writer Bronco Marchetich, author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Bronco will return to This Is Hell to talk about the recent midterm elections and what they mean for the left. Bronco will also discuss his recent writing on our expanding national security state. Thanks to this week's producers, Dan Hill. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure doing a show with you. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper, Lindsey Gorey. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Hummison just because. Talk to you on, tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you are a regular listener of this is hell. You know that I missed the last couple of weeks because I had COVID and I had it real bad. It was painful. It was exhausting. It was awful. It was so bad that over those two weeks, I repeatedly tested positive for the virus. According to the CDC, you can test positive for several weeks after first contracting the virus. However, after only five to 10 days of being infected, you are no longer contagious. You are no longer transmitting the virus to other people. All that said, 
I thought it would be best to not hold This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet with listeners that's really a drink and think until that is eye test negative. So, last night, I took an at-home COVID test to determine whether I can attend This Is Hell Office Hours this evening, and the results were negative, which is positive, because that means, yes, Office Hours returns, and I will be here despite... uh, the horrible weather that we're supposed to be having. So please join me and other listeners and members of the This Is Hell crew for Office Hours. It carries Lounge, 2251 West Havana Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which this week returns to its regular Wednesday evening time. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>